I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tonight, a stark warning from Neffet. The country is potentially facing 200,000 COVID cases next month. But Ronan Glynn says the current trajectory of the disease can be changed. If we continue on the trajectory we're on, we think that upwards of 200,000 people will get infected with COVID-19 in December. None of those people are infected today as we sit here. They don't need to become infected. We'll be discussing this and the other fallout from yesterday's new measures with our panel in just a moment. Also tonight, the government sets out its redress scheme for survivors of mother and baby homes. But is it enough? And we'll speak to Amnesty International as an Irishman faces trial over his humanitarian work in Greece. We want to hear what you think. Get in touch on Twitter. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV. Good evening. We begin tonight with a stark warning from Neffet. Now, you've heard those words before, undoubtedly, but the projection that Dr. Ronan Glynn had to give today was pretty grim by all accounts. He said there could be 200,000 cases of COVID-19 diagnosed in December alone. For context, we have only barely half a million cases in the duration of the pandemic so far here in the Republic. But he has been telling our news correspondent, Zara King, that the outbreaks are preventable. Dr. Glynn, I want to begin by asking you about antigen testing because over the last two years, NEFIT has never been in favour of widespread use of antigen testing, yet in its latest letter to government, it's now recommending antigen testing twice a week. Why the massive U-turn at this point in the pandemic? I'd contend that it's an, an enormous U-turn, Zara, uh, and it's not that NEFIT, so with, with so many things across this pandemic, they're painted as being black or white, and that there's we're either completely in favour of something or we're not in favour of it at all. And that's never been the case. We've said from day one that there is a role for antigen tests, particularly in high prevalence settings, like, for example, outbreaks. At the moment, the whole country could be regarded as a high prevalence setting. And so there is a role for it. But we are concerned and our concern from the start and remains, unfortunately, that many people are using antigen tests in the wrong way. We know that the majority of people who are using antigen tests out in the community at the moment are using them when they have symptoms. And our clear message to anybody with symptoms is not to use an antigen test, to isolate immediately and get a PCR test. But you trust the public to take on personal responsibility when it comes to everything else. Why not with antigen testing? So it's not a case of trust or or distrust of the public. Our data is telling us that the majority of the public currently today are using antigen tests in the wrong way. They're using them as a green light test, which which, which has always been our fundamental concern, that people with symptoms are going out and buying an antigen test. The antigen test is not detecting COVID-19. People are then saying, "Okay, I don't need to isolate. I don't need to get a PCR test. And they're carrying on about their daily business. That's dangerous. That's precisely the thing we want to avoid. 
for the last three weeks to a month in effort and both HC everyone's been asking everyone to go back to basics but that message doesn't seem to be landing with people are you worried that you've lost the room on this no I'm not worried that we've lost the room I'm not I'm not surprised to a certain extent that the message has been much harder to get across all of society or the vast majority of society is now open so it's a much more complex message to communicate and I understand that it's difficult for people to navigate all of the various messages that they're hearing but to my mind the key messages remain clear and remain and hopefully after this week are clearer than ever which is that we want people to work from home unless they have to go into work and I understand fully that many many more people have to go into work now than at any time previously during the pandemic we want people with symptoms to isolate we want people to wear a mask properly not wear it for the sake of it not wear it under your chin wear it properly covering nose to chin um, we want, and as of this week, again, we want, if, if someone in your household is diagnosed with COVID-19, we want you to restrict your movements until you've completed three antigen tests that the HSE will send you. So all of those measures together, um, avoiding crowds, prioritising who you need to meet. Like, we are all desperate for social contact. We are all so sick and tired of this pandemic. We want to be able to go and meet our friends, meet our families. But given the very high level of disease that's in the community at the moment, we've got some really difficult decisions to make, each and every one of us as individuals. We've had messages from people since yesterday saying, I can work from home, I want to work from home, but my boss won't let me. And the boss is saying, it's only guidance from NEFIT, it's not mandated. Even somebody working in a government department messaged last night to say that they could work from home and yet they're in the office. Do you appreciate that there's a challenge then between the employee and the employer? So I think there's, there's two parts to that. We've always been clear that there needs to be an open dialogue between employer and employees and that employers need to facilitate uh, what, what we're asking in terms of the public health advice. And by and large, I think employers and employees have done that very well through the pandemic. Of course, there'll be exceptions and of course, there'll be examples. But I'd go further than that and say, I think that, that yes, we've been advising. Government has now clearly stated that unless, you, unless it's absolutely necessary to be in work over the next few weeks, you should be working from home. And if it doesn't work? I don't think there's much purpose in speculating on that right now. But don't you appreciate that people will want to know now? They will want to make their plans for Christmas. They're going to want to know if they have to have awkward conversations about who can and can't be at the table on Christmas Day. These are all the things that people want to know at this stage. So the best thing that anyone can do right now in relation to what we hopefully can all do at Christmas time is to cut their discretionary contacts. So the more that people reduce the number of other people they meet and the number of high, higher risk environments they go into over the next couple of weeks, the greater will be the opportunities that we all have over the Christmas period. But we can't give precise advice to people six weeks out for five, six weeks out from Christmas. But again, when you talk about Christmas, the core message in relation to Christmas is that there are people walking around today who are not infected, who will end up in hospital and in critical care at Christmas time. There are families today who will be restricting movements at Christmas time because their loved ones are cases of COVID-19. What we need to do as a society is to avoid that to the greatest extent possible. Dr. Ronan Glynn there, the Chief Medical, or the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, excuse me, talking to our news correspondent, Zara King. Let's discuss this and much more. I'm joined in studio by Fianna Fáil Senator Fiona O'Loughlin, the Social Democrats TD Holly Cairns, and by Kevin Doyle, who's Group Head of News at Independent.ie. We're also joined by Skype by Kieran Christie, who's the General Secretary of the ASTI. Um, Fiona O'Loughlin, can I come to you first of all? Ronan Glynn just said there that nothing is predetermined, that it is not at all preordained that anyone is going to be in hospital with COVID in December. 
Is what the government did yesterday going to be enough to ensure that the hospitals are not overrun with COVID infections in December? And if not, why not? We're in a very difficult situation. and None of us thought, I think this time last year, that we'd be here again talking about essentially the same thing. But I think that we, we, we're trying to have a sense of business as usual while putting restrictions in place to make sure that everybody stays as safe as possible, be that in terms of a student in school, be that somebody at, wor at work, uh, or indeed those in the service industry. The biggest thing really is in relation to those that are unvaccinated. And we know that we've one of the highest vaccinated rates in the world at 93%, but of the 7% that are unvaccinated, they're taking up 48% of the hospital spaces and they're taking up 52% of the ICU beds. So I think there's a very clear lesson in that. Apart from that, of course, we all have to look at our own personal responsibility. We all have to cut our social contacts, as the doctor has said, and maintain all the different levels of hygiene that we have. Sure, been. but if, uh, if people have gone 11 months into a vaccination programme and have still decided not to take up a vaccine, they're not going to take up another one. So that, that uh, cohort of the population, which is unvaccinated, is probably going to remain that way. You're still going to have 7% of people unvaccinated, whether you like it or not. It, it is a concern, but from what I'm hearing anecdotally from families who are saying that they now feel that they don't want to have unvaccinated members of the family joining them at Christmas, I think that's going to be a strong message out there. Holly Cairns, do you think that what was done yesterday would be enough to avoid hospitals being overrun and would you have liked to see more in order to avoid a healthcare meltdown? I think one of the things that's really difficult to understand is why none of this was done sooner. You know, you say nobody thought we'd be here, but like for some time we've known that there's been a rise in cases, that the vaccination programme is great, but it has not been the silver bullet that we all hoped for. So what and to draw an example, sooner? antigen testing in schools, for example. So, you know, back in June, Micheál Martin was, was talking about antigen testing um, when the chief scientific officer did a report commissioned by the Minister for Health back in March. Mm. Then in October, he said he was a big fan of antigen tests when there's really been no evidence of that. And Leo Varadkar said it would be wise to introduce this in schools. But, but that is yet fair, to happen. But to be fair, they this have been morning, used the in Minister for Health was they've on been, the radio saying... They've been saying, used in food processing places. They are introducing them into schools. And we've started the booster vaccination as well. Already everybody over 80 I'm has had the booster. The booster but, 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 no, but I'm talking about vaccinations in schools here. Tests, though, which was Fiona. recommended the, the, back there in is, There is a kernel of truth to what Holly is saying in that the, the government received that report from Mark Ferguson and his expert advisory team in April and it's now mid-November and the one area in which they would be at their most useful which is the mass congregation every day of nearly half a million unvaccinated under 12s and we still have no idea when they're going to be used. I accept the point you're making, but there's very differing views. And we've just heard Dr. Glynn speak about it there. I was listening to Dr. Wally on the radio today saying about the, the reservations that a lot of the, the medics have in relation to antigen testings, testing. They certainly have a place in the armour of how we deal with COVID. And I agree with that. And they are being carried out in terms of higher level education and in relation to food mm. factories, meat factories, etc. But there it's not is. Really, that's not widespread practice. But, but, but there is. There, well, there is from what I hear. But there is a concern that people would use them instead of the PCR. So when they start having symptoms, 
which may be COVID, then that's when they take the antigen testing, when they should be going for the PCR testing. I do think there is a role for antigen tests, and I am glad that they have said that they're going to ro ro roll them out in school well, settings. One sector which is likely to be using a lot of them is the school sector, and as I said, we are joined on Skype by Kieran Christie, the General Secretary of the ASTI. Kieran, we heard today from Norma Foley that apparently there will be some protocols or some guidance rolled out by the end of this week for the use of antigen tests in schools. Do you guys know anything we don't? Well, you, you mentioned there, um, no, we certainly haven't seen any proposals in relation to, to schools at, at all yet. Uh, but you mentioned the Ferguson report. We've been raising the issue of antigen testing uh, with the Department of Education and Public Health for well over a year now. And uh, we were promised a, a pilot uh, programme uh, before the summer in schools and it never materialised and it appears to have been abandoned. But I, I would make this distinction actually at second level as uh, in relation to second level rather than primary level. What we wouldn't want to see is uh, a replacement of the PCR testing. Remember the contact tracing and testing continues at second level schools and uh, it's underpinned with PCR testing and we wouldn't want to see that abolished in favour of antigen testing for all the reasons that Ron and Glenn what, has what, just after said. What would be the application, Kieran? In secondary schools, how would you use antigen tests if the full contact tracing rigors and PCRs are still being used? What, what extra use does antigen have for you? Well, we've consistently said that we wouldn't be appointing ourselves as epidemiologists or anything like that. But what we will say is that we would like to see uh, uh, initiatives by the experts to tell us how we could better protect communities or enhance the protection of school communities by using antigen testings. And, and that's certainly uh, something that we've been advocating for strongly right since the beginning of this pandemic. So is that something then that you would see being rolled out as a general screening situation? Or do you think that it ought to be deployed in certain instances where you might suspect that there's a case? Well, uh, we're, we're, we have an open mind in that we will be guided by the expertise of how this best could be rolled out in schools. As I said, the key objective would be to supplement uh, the PCR testing that's going on uh, uh, with a view to further enhancing, the uh, making schools even further COVID secure, if that were possible, in the context of the very substantial uh, um, sort of uh, um, uh, numbers we have in the community at the present time. Uh, well, one other issue which relates to how schools operate, of course, is the proposal, which we thought was going to be the case yesterday, that teachers might be exempted from this new rule that they would have to self-isolate for five days if there was a COVID-positive case in their household. And there was an extraordinary clash in the Dáil today between the Taoiseach and the leader of the Labour Party, Alan Kelly, about who said what and when and the row over teachers being exempt from self-isolation. Let's have a watch. You messed up. This wasn't a total misconstruction. Wasn't a total misconstruction. You even denied we had a conversation in here, which makes you look rather silly, considering there's a video of it. So, Taoiseach, in your reply, because I'm not going to dwell on it, because we have more serious things, if you want to call me a liar, call me a liar. You learn something new every day, and I learned something about you yesterday that I will not forget. I've never seen the likes of it before, and suddenly you come over here for a 30 or 40 second engagement, you scamper up, you tell your education correspondent who tweets something, and it's reported as fact. It's extraordinary. Anyway, Taoiseach, you're also the Taoiseach that said the banks wouldn't be, weren't bailed out. <laughs> and your, your threats and roaring down the phone and threats in here don't, don't bother me. I let the public decide who they believe. 
Uh, Kevin Doyle, uh, group head of news at independent.ie, is that the sort of parliamentary theatre that only matters inside the bubble or does that get outside and is that the sort of thing that the broader public takes on board? Well, I think the particular issue on that one around teachers and the idea that they might have been exempt from effectively new close contacts, that certainly went outside the bubble because that went around all the mammy WhatsApp groups and all the teacher and school WhatsApp groups uh, and there was fury over it. So one of probably three things happened either the conversation is as Alan Kelly said it is, it's the way the Taoiseach said it is, or there was a massive U-turn by the government very quickly after that. Um, Which do you suspect? Uh, it, who knows? Like, two men had a 40-second conversation and they both have completely alter universe realities of what happened, so it, it's impossible to know, but it, it just speaks to the general confusion around all of that. And I think what you actually saw there is the doll, perhaps for once, reflecting wider society because it's clear nerves are frayed. People are at the end of their tether, they're tetchy, they're gone past the point of reason. Um, and you, you can see that clearly Alan Kelly and Michal Martin are just sick of this and everyone's just sick of this. And I think that's what, what you're seeing there is just um, it kind of playing out in, in the doll. Holly Cairns, you have no particular loyalty to either the Taoiseach or um, Alan Kelly, so you're probably the, the neutral arbiter in the room. What do you think? Who's correct and who isn't? I don't know who's correct and who isn't like Kevin, like it's anyone's guess, but it just felt like a bit of theatre to me and a bit like the principal telling off his best pupil was kind of the feeling, but it was an important issue that they were raising. And another issue in relation to schools and close contacts is that we've got different advice from uh, the HSE and the public health advice in relation to whether you should isolate or whether schools can inform families if one of their children is a close contact of another student um, with a positive COVID test. That needs to be addressed as well, which is kind of related and maybe uh, of more importance than uh, Michal Martin and Alan Kelly's little debate. schools uh, is a huge issue. It has been all along, but I think it's an even bigger issue now because as we start to rein in and all the noise within government is that we're at a staging post. What happened in the last 48 hours is really a two-week holding pattern till we figure out what really has to happen in terms of restrictions. And I think there will be more restrictions and we're fooling ourselves if we think that in two weeks time, even if we all stay at home for those two weeks, it probably won't be enough to stop more restrictions. But I think the school thing is the government's one big achievement that they can still argue is on track, is that they kept schools open. But they don't seem to accept the idea that it's possible to believe that schools are inherently risky places, that there are children who do not behave like adults. So you can't trust the adults to go to a restaurant or a theatre, but you can trust the children to go into school and wear masks uh, and, and do everything And of course told. all the under 12s are unvaccinated. And the under 12, well. exactly. So, but it is possible to leave that's an inherently risky place and also that it should be open and that we value schools more than theatres and pubs. Um, but I don't hear anybody in government saying that. And I think there's huge frustration among teachers that, about the way they, government keeps saying schools are fine. Let me go back to Kieran Christie on that. Kieran, if the government is insistent that it is an achievement that schools have been opened and managed to stay open, do you share that sense that it is an achievement and can the government claim credit for that? Well, uh, what I would say is that uh, managing schools on a daily basis and, and actually the, the spat between the Labour Party leader and the Taoiseach uh, underlined that in terms of highlighting the issue around substitution in schools. But on a daily basis, schools are hanging in there by a thread trying to manage all the restrictions in terms of mask wearing, sanitising, all the rest of it. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, a substitution crisis, which was uh, very much at the heart of their spat. And uh, of course, uh, that predates the pandemic in that uh, uh, it, it, it was developing and it has taken off during the pandemic, obviously, because of the additional absences 
for COVID-related illnesses and COVID-related reasons. But the, the truth of the matter is that teachers uh, and school communities are just hanging in there by a thread. Principals in the morning will be ringing frantically around trying to get substitutes. And uh, uh, it, 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 unfortunately, there's an extent, and I don't like saying this, but there's an extent to what uh, we're, we're reaping what we sold in that respect. Kieran, we, we don't hear as much at the second level about the shortage of, of substitute teachers and the likes as we hear in primary. Is it that acute? And is there any other short-term measure that the department could consider to help you to plug the gap, maybe standing down the inspectors and sending them back to the classroom, for example? Well, it's more acute in certain subject areas, actually. Uh, not, not in them all. But uh, in, uh, the truth of the matter is that uh, it has been developing and, and, and building uh, for several years pre to the pre-pandemic and it is now uh, uh, quite acute uh, and uh, um, uh, you know uh, principals are, are pulling their hair out on a, uh, on a daily basis uh, frantically trying to magic up uh, solutions uh, in terms of uh, all sorts of creative measures but uh, there's a structural problem there that needs to be addressed. Um, Fiona Lachlan, uh, the Taoiseach, has been very vocal about saying that the reopening of schools is something the government is very proud of. Isn't it really the case that if schools have to close again, then this, the government's authority and its competence to manage COVID is completely shot? I think that the government will do everything that they absolutely can to ensure that schools stay open. Schools are a priority, not just for government, but I think for everybody within society. And Can you say that they've done everything that they possibly can when they decided to stand down the contact tracing routine and didn't even have antigen tests ready to substitute in instead? But well, from what I understand, schools have the authority to be able to do that contact tracing themselves and let parents know, but not to identify the child, the child's name. I don't believe that the schools do have the authority. That's They're actually going against protocol to even advise parents that there's a case outside of the pot. My, my understanding as of yesterday that that is the case. But I do think that they are doing everything that they can. I think it is a priority. We saw what happened in the early stages, apart from children losing the opportunity to have their socialisation and, of course, their whole academic um, skills, you know, and, and, and their own learning, with the situation where those that were essential workers and HSE, etc., not actually having a situation where they had anybody, a, a place for their children to go during school time and, indeed, couldn't get childminders. So it was a very, very, very difficult place. And I think that everything will be put in to ensure that that does not happen again. Uh, before I go to a break, Kevin, though, a final question for you before I let you go. If there is to be another lockdown, is that the authority of this government completely then dismissed and there won't be any public buy-in to anything they do afterwards? I think there's a serious trust issue now. Um, I, I think the medics clearly don't trust people and that's the whole antigen test, but I think people are slowly start and surely starting to lose trust and it'll be very, very hard to get people back into a lockdown that would have any level of restrictions that we've seen before in terms of travel limits and all that. I, I just can't see how the government would bring the people with them. So where do we go the then if you have a government that's in office and no one is prepared to, to give them the time of day for management? What does that mean? Where does that leave us? I, I suspect you will probably see more restrictions around pubs, around entertainment, stuff that they can actually control and legislate for. But I think they will struggle to legislate for the wider public because I think um, Roland Lynn said they haven't lost the room. They may not have lost the room completely but I think the room will only take so much more. Uh, Kevin, thanks for that insight. A little bit of breaking news just reaching us. A man has been seriously injured in a suspected gun attack in the Ballyfermot area of Dublin. We've just received these pictures from the scene. Gardaí say that a man has sustained a number of apparent gunshot wounds in the incident and has been taken to hospital with serious injuries. No arrests so far have been made.
Fiona and Holly will be joining us for part two. We'll be discussing the 800 million euro redress scheme for the survivors of mother and baby homes. Don't go away. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Now, the government has announced details of its 800 million euro redress scheme for the survivors of mother and baby homes, saying that it's by far the largest in the history of the state in terms of the number of beneficiaries. Around 34,000 people will be entitled to redress. And before we came on air this evening, I spoke to historian Catherine Corliss, whose work on the Bon Secours mother and baby home in Tune brought so much of that tragedy to light. And I began by asking her for her reflections on the report upon which this redress scheme is based. But the report that came out was absolutely devastating because it wasn't anything to do with what the survivors had told them. And it, it wasn't survivor friendly. It was a very cold and callous report. And we're still hoping that there may be some amendments to it or may, that it may be scrapped altogether. It's not a true history of what happened. We know that there is a High Court challenge to discuss the overturning some sections of that, so we're mindful about what we say in all of this. But, um, Catherine, because it's nine months since this report was published, you might remind us of some of the stories that you believe ought to have been included that weren't in the final document. Well, first of all, they have all the accounts from the survivors who went up and gave two hours of their time in heartbreak, telling them what happened to them and given evidence. And very, very little was taken uh, from their accounts. That was the first thing. And also, uh, I gave them taped evidence of a woman who lived in the home all her life. And about two lines of what uh, evidence what that counted came into that final report. And I don't know, they gave, uh, it was a wrong, it was very wrong what happened. And we're still calling for that report to be scrapped. In your eyes, then, if that report is the seed from which the redress scheme is drawn, um, is the redress scheme fundamentally flawed because the stories that it's based on are, are not a true reflection of what happened? Well, it's quite possible because they did indicate, because they more or less used the language that, oh, well, these mother and baby homes, it wasn't as bad as the, the uh, industrial schools. And to make a comparison like that was just horrendous and very unprofessional. And I don't know what went on behind the scenes, but definitely it's not what we expected. And uh, I mean, the survivors who went through those horrendous homes, they deserve more. 
And uh, even in the redress, uh, it's something that I wasn't at the front of my my, uh, campaign. It it was always, um, the the, the survivors did look for respect and justice. And just, uh, uh, you know, they they were looking for counselling and they were looking for just to be treated like everybody else. But uh, this redress scheme now as well, it's... it's, uh, it's harrowing, really. It's not what we hoped for. And I know there are a lot of groups out there who are very, very upset over it. And the worst of all was to um, was to start when a child was six months old. They're not accounting for when the child is born, when it's taken off its mother. Uh, to make that, uh, disting- you know, that uh, distinction between whether you're six months or five months, those under six months are not included, and I think that was very, very callous of the government to do that. And also, I noticed in that redress that uh, we're not told if it's a doubt of the taxpayers that are going to fund this 800 million. There's no word of asking the church and the religious to be included in this. And we need to know that. We need to know are they really standing behind their apologies. They all apologised back in January, the church and the Bons, and Bons Corps sisters and the other nuns. And the, um, they all apologised, the church as well. Surely to goodness they have to come out and put, put meat on their words. So we, we, would, we would like to know that as well. Are, are, are the church and the religious going to back this m- m- money as well? Catherine Corliss speaking to me just before we come in air this evening. By the way, Catherine Corliss today received an honorary doctorate from GMIT and congratulations to her on that accolade. I'm still joined in studio by Fianna Fáil Senator Fiona O'Loughlin, by the Social Democrats TD Holly Cairns and also by Susan Lowen from the Adoption Rights Alliance. And Susan, I'll start with yourself. You're here as something of a representative yep. for the survivors of mother and baby homes. What is their general impression of what was announced yesterday? Uh, appalled, saddened and feeling very, very betrayed. Uh, this 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 outline of the redress scheme, well, actually, it's, it's very ominously called an ex gratia payment scheme. There's no mention of damages. There's no mention of abuse. There's no mention of human rights uh, abuses. Um, and it just, it's a box-ticking exercise. The, the payments, which are elucidated on page five, you know, frankly, you know, it's, it's like they're being given compensation for a bad holiday. Um, as we were tired of pointing out back in 2014, because that's when this this all went to, to pieces. The fact that the the then Finnefall, sorry, Finnegale and Labour government focused on conditions within the mother and baby homes, they tried to con people, deceive people into believing that mother and baby homes, which was a, a, which systematically separated. Uh, unmarried mothers and their children from wider society uh, on top of the other abuses they enjoyed there, that that was somehow normal. And this this redress scheme again attempts to normalise that and that, you know, we're down to talking about maybe the bad diet, the heating, the, the bed linen, uh, you know, 5,000... Is, is, is that euro- impression or is that approach, Susan, what, what naturally happens when you do have a report, as Catherine Cordes was, yeah. was criticising just a few minutes ago, which basically sees people being admitted to mother and baby homes as societal pressure and not because of any other reason. Yes, everybody was to blame, therefore nobody was to blame. But of course, it was the government who invited in various religious orders to run these homes, not least being the Bon Secours order who ran the true mother and baby home where the worst abuses happened. Um, So the book stops with the government because there were various acts which guaranteed welfare of children who were um, 
in the care of the state ostensibly and in the care, so-called care of the state agents. The Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, explained yesterday that one of the reasons why people, children who were not in homes for longer than six months wouldn't be receiving redress was yeah. because they may not have had very many memories oh, of their, their time I mean, in there. He described his comment as artless. I, I, you know, I, I could think of many more adjectives I would, I would add to that. Uh, he clearly has no idea about child psychology and hasn't bothered to inform himself. Is he suggesting, therefore, that a child of seven months old suddenly has a memory of what, what they endured? The, again, the elephant in the room here is that we had enforced family separation. The children were forcibly taken from their mothers. They were denied the, the pleasure and comfort and love of their natural families, denied their heritage and their identities. And the loss of identity the, um, continues to this day. And Roderick O'Gorman, you know, his comments about his department generously opening up the Commission's archive, that is a complete deception. Uh, Senator Fiona Lachlan, you've been um, nodding to what Susan's had to say there. And of course, we all would because what happened in mother and baby homes is awful. Nobody could ever condone what happened there. No one could stand over forced family separation. And yet, if the redress scheme doesn't fully acknowledge and compensate for all of that, then it's clearly a failure. I think the mother and baby home, just even the words themselves are a misnomer because when you think of mother and baby, you think of Madonna, when you think of home, you think of a warm, nurturing place. And these were institutions that separated families, that robbed women of their identity, of education, and worst of all, of their children, as you say. And, and, and under these proposals, some people whose families were broken up will receive the sum total of nothing. The biggest issue, I, I believe, is in, in listening to survivors is about their access to their birth records and to their earlier experiences. And the minister has been unequivocal in saying that that is going to be given. I know that the pre-leg for the legislation is going through the committee at the moment. That's going to be ready before to Christmas, thankfully. To birth records. Absolutely, and will not be redacted. They will have that. In terms they deserve more than that, though, don't they, they surely? They do deserve more Their than that. Access to your basic identity is a basic human right, and if it, all they get is that, it and is. no other compensation, and no you know other what? enhanced medical cards, nothing. Nothing will ever take away the trauma that these people have suffered. Absolutely nothing. It's just horrendous, and again, to have listened, to have read, and to have seen. And Dr Corliss as I'm very pleased to call her tonight, mm. is right in what she says. There was a, a, the report was 2,865 pages long and it was incomplete. And it absolutely left out a lot of the lived experience of the survivors. All we can attempt to do is try to give some dignity back to survivors, to give them their birth records and to make some recompense for the wrong that was done to them. And I think we will never succeed in getting that absolutely right. But all we can do... You're never going to get it right if some people get no recompense at all, yeah. which, is the, which is the terms of this scheme. From what I understand, in terms of the scheme that as was presented yesterday, and, and I do think it's really important that originally the Commission suggested that it would only be women um, before 1974, and that was only going to be 13,000. It's now 34,000 survivors, and 19,000 are going to get extra medical cards, as they absolutely should. I think it's important to acknowledge that okay. and to say that there, there is room for growth. There is going to be another consultative period with the survivors and with 
all of the groups over the next 10 months in okay. relation to how you know this this would be put in place in terms of the structures and also in terms of the memorialisation of the experiences okay. that they have had. Um, Holly Cairns of the Social Democrats, yes there are shortcomings in, and yes not everybody is happy but it is the most comprehensive redress scheme in the history of the state, 34,000 people eligible and a sum total of 800 million euro. That was just the most long-winded way of avoiding addressing the fact that there's a time-based criteria for how long somebody was in an institution. So if you experience a serious human rights violation like forced family separation in less than six months, you are not entitled to anything under this scheme. Yeah. It's also important to note that if you've received a redress from a, an, another institution, for example, an industrial school, then you're not entitled to this either, as if, oh, well, you know, that first part of your trauma is more valid than the next, so now you're not entitled to this. There are two very important things. You aren't you're not entitled to, to all the parts you of your birth records. You just said that I'm on the Children's right. Committee. Sorry, why are you pointing and one of the things that, because I'm trying to explain something to you and you keep interrupting but, no, me. No, but you don't have to point Can, can you allow Holly to finish your point, please, and then we'll let you back in. One of the things that you're not entitled to under the current legislation for the Birth Information and Tracing Bill is access to the information about your own care. So there's lots of things like that, information about your siblings. So people still can't find out the fate of their disappeared relatives necessarily under the current legislation. Not to mention the fact that we're also looking at the, the burials bill on the Children's Committee, which is essentially legislating to um, intervene in the case of manifestly inappropriate burials, but not in the case of all of the other graves around the, the country. And so, you know, when the, the third thing that's really important to highlight in relation to uh, the, the, the report today, or the, the redress scheme, is that not only is there those two issues, the, the, the six months and uh, if you've been in another institution that you've got redress from, is how this came about. How did they decide how to give people redress? So after the Commission's report, they set up um, the Oak report to ask survivors how they wanted redress to work. So they asked a very clear question. Survivors came back with a very clear answer. Here's the table. So it says the first thing they wanted it to be based on was forced family separation or forced family disappearance. After that, psychological trauma and harm, obviously very intrinsically linked. The list goes on. There's things like vaccine experiments, um, harm or injury, before we get down to how long somebody but, spent in an institution. But just to, to explain this for so viewers at just, home who don't have the table but can in front I just of you. Say so one what they're basically thing, saying Evan. is that the one thing that they were most, most upset by and the one thing they wanted most to be addressed was, was ignored. separation. And Fiona just referenced there, um, you know, listening to survivors, and we've heard this throughout the Commission of Investigations report, we've heard this throughout Redress, that survivor-centred. This is an example of how the minister did exactly what the Commission Investigations Report did. They asked survivors, survivors told them they completely ignored and went with something okay. else. Here's another example of it. I, right? I promised Fiona an opportunity to come okay. back in. No. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But, uh, but I think we're all on the same side here. There's 220 Oireachtas members and I listened to all, everything, all the contributions in relation to when the, the Commission report was finalised. And, and I have no doubt that every single one of those people wants the very best for the survivors, for the women that were in the homes, for the mums that were separated for the from their children and the children indeed. And there has to be a system that can be worked through. And I think that in terms of many of the different systems that have been put in place to be addressed, that it's a very, very good starting point. This doesn't have to be the end and it shouldn't be the end. Susan, if this is not in. the end, what, what does come next in your eyes? Well, I just want to come back to, you know, Fiona's point about it being comprehensive redress scheme. You know, it's only 30% of the numbers that went through these homes as 
and they're, they're very low numbers, that the Commission on Investigation, 113,000, only 30% of those numbers will actually receive a penny's redress. So the remainder are excluded because they were there for three months. And that's on top months, of, we estimate, anything up to 150,000, 200,000 children and mothers who never set foot in a mother and baby home, but who were subject to the same apartheid, the segregation from society, because they gave birth in a maternity hospital, a private nursing home, or a private home somewhere. So the numbers, it just seems the numbers that are going to qualify for any sort of redress they're just, they have diminished so since this report Fiona came says out. says this is not a finished article and it's now subject well, to consultation. No. Will you and your, your representatives be taking part well, in that? Well, of, of course we will. But I have been, I have been working on this, just this, the Commission since, uh, report since 2014. All of our recommendations have been ignored along with other groups. And we can see that today. I, I particularly feel for those who went through various Bethany homes who've been just written out of this equation. Uh, just to let you know, you can contact some helplines on Virgin Media, television.ie forward slash helplines. Uh, coming up after the break, an Irishman faces trial in Greece over his humanitarian work. Don't go away. Welcome back. Now, there is an Irishman facing trial tomorrow in Greece. Sean Binder has been charged with misdemeanor, counts of espionage, forgery and unlawful use of radio frequencies, and he faces a maximum eight-year jail sentence. He was working as a humanitarian volunteer on the Greek island of Lesbos, involved in helping to save migrants from the Mediterranean Sea. Here's a little bit of what Sean himself had to say recently to the Associated Press. I think it's important to to challenge these in the court, to not, to not at all sit back and accept that we should be cast as, as smugglers or spies because I offered CPR most more often than not just a smile to someone in distress or someone who had just overcome a distressing situation of their own ability to survive. Sean Binder speaking to the AP recently. We're still joined in studio by Fianna Fáil Senator Fiona O'Loughlin and by the Social Democrats TD Holly Cairns. Uh, we're also joined via Skype by Colm O'Gorman, who's Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland. Uh, Colm, is, is it common excuse me, uh, for people involved in humanitarian rescues to be prosecuted on the basis of apparent trafficking? Unfortunately, it's becoming all too common, particularly in Europe, that we're seeing not just individuals, but NGOs who are carrying out critical humanitarian work being criminalised and prosecuted. I mean, countries including Spain, Switzerland, France, the UK, Malta, Croatia and Greece, in this case, have launched extraordinary criminal prosecutions against people simply because they have stopped, stepped up, stepped forward and carried out really essential humanitarian work, very often saving people's lives. And are they doing that to try and make an example of these people and these NGOs and to, to ward off further migrants from coming? There's no doubt about the fact that it's, it's a really, really obscene extension of efforts uh, by Europe over the last decade or more to create 
really a really hostile environment for people who have absolutely a, a legal right to seek protection here in Europe when they're fleeing persecution. I mean, it's EU policies that have created a situation where we have a market for people smugglers, where the Mediterranean has been a graveyard for the last decade or more because they have closed down safe and legal routes for people to seek protection. It's because the EU withdrew search and rescue missions in the Mediterranean that NGOs have stepped forward and started to provide exactly the same missions and why people like Sean and Sarah Mardini have gone to islands like Lesvos to give comfort to people when they arrive on, on the shores of Europe. And, and for that uh, crime, I mean, it's no crime at all, it's ridiculous to suggest that it is, they're facing the most extraordinarily trumped up charges, everything from people trafficking to spying. I mean, one example of how ludicrous this is, that at one point, Sean and Sarah were facing charges with spying because they, uses, they, uses, they used encrypted uh, uh, media or communications methods to, to talk to each other. The encrypted method was WhatsApp. Um, Colin, when we come to, to refugees and uh, resettlement, Ireland is generally seen as being a, a pretty good actor. Should Ireland be getting then more involved when its own citizens or its own people are being prosecuted in what you believe are trumped up charges elsewhere in the EU? There's an important distinction, I suppose, that needs to be made here and that, that, that Sean, whilst he grew up here in Ireland and as an Irish parent, is actually a, a German national. So it's the German government who have a consular responsibility here. But certainly Ireland is an EU member state in which Sean has been resident. I mean, Sean, for all the purposes as a young Irishman, uh, needs to be much more vocal in pushing Europe uh, to end this, to ensure that Greece ends this ridiculous prosecution, stops this trial but also to push Europe to end this appalling pattern of stigmatizing and demonizing refugees and migrants and using them as political pawns, particular to see, you know, so-called strongman leaders using, using refugees and migrants, as we're seeing on the border of, of, of Poland and Belarus at the moment, as weapons in political wars. It's absolutely obscene. Countries in Europe, including Ireland, have obligations under, under international law to ensure that people who need protection are provided with safe and legal means to seek that protection. Instead, what we see is Fortress Europe over the last 10 years condemning many thousands of people to die in the Mediterranean. And now, as we've seen in Sean and Sarah's case, prosecuting people who step forward and do the right thing because those states won't. Uh, Colm, stay with us. We're still joined, as I said, in studio by Holly Cairns and by Fiona O'Loughlin. Um, Fiona, the teacher was asked about this in, in the Dáil earlier on, and he said that there is something of an honour code within uh, the EU that no member states try to get involved or try to make representations in the judicial system of another, effectively meaning that Ireland and Germany would take a hands-off approach in this case. Is that good enough if somebody is being prosecuted on what appear to be trumped-up charges when all they're trying to do is to fish people out of the sea? I think this needs to be brought up at the Council of Europe. It's a clear breach of human rights. I visited the jungle in Calais about seven years ago and I saw all the tremendous work that the NGOs were doing there just to give people the powers of survival and to give them a little bit of dignity and, and food and clothing. And what Sean and his colleagues are doing, I believe there's actually 24 people up on trial uh, on Thursday. I, I do think that we should be doing more as a country and that Germany should be also. But I believe that the Council of Europe really need to intervene and try to secure Sean, Sarah and, and the other 22 that are in, in tri up in trial tomorrow. Um, Holly, it can be a bit of a slippery slope sometimes and nobody likes the idea of one country meddling in the judicial affairs of another. Should Ireland be getting more involved in a case like this? Yeah, I mean, people like Sean should be getting medals, not being put in prison. And I, I do think that the Irish government should be shouting loudly about this. You know, he's been in prison for 100 days now. He's looking at sentences for up to 25 years. Th this kind of thing, if there's a precedent set, that's a real attack on humanitarian work as well. And I think as a, as a member of the European Union, we need to speak up about that. 
and for individuals like Sean, absolutely, and Germany. Uh, Fiona, if you believe that there should be more engagement by the Irish government on behalf of this, even if there is the complication that Sean is an Irish resident but not an Irish national, then why would the Taoiseach agree to, to take the general approach of standing back as he told the doll it was likely to happen earlier? Uh, well, I, I do know that our MEPs have brought this up in, in the European Parliament. Grace O'Sullivan has um, organised a petition and I think that's signed by 60 MEPs and another 68, I believe, are on the point of signing it, including Billy Kelleher and Barry Andrews. Um, so I, I think we have to have a collective approach. Uh, most certainly, I think, and I, and I accept the point that the councillor end of it has to go through Germany. But I think as a country, we need to stand up and say that this is not good enough. OK, last word to Colm O'Gorman, who's still with us on Skype. Uh, Colm, your view on the, the Taoiseach stance that this is something that member states generally don't get involved in? that as a matter of honour, uh, Ireland wouldn't intervene or get involved in this case. There's nothing honourable uh, about this trend within Europe to criminalise humanitarian NGOs and workers. I mean, for instance, we're seeing Medicines Sans Frontières face criminal charges in a number of European countries. The, the plight of Sean and Sarah really is another really graphic example how, of how individuals are being targeted in this way. Honour demands that we stand up and speak out. We're members of the European Union. What Europe does, it does in our name. And if the EU is silent on this at an institutional level, at a leadership level, um, then we're complicit in that silence. So I absolutely believe that all member states have a responsibility to stand up and to speak out. Equally, it's important to remember that states have clear responsibilities under international law to defend human rights defenders Colin, Colin, and I'm to afraid, defend I'm the I'm sorry to cut you off, Colin, but I'm afraid we are completely out of time. Colin McGorman from Amnesty International, Ireland, thank you very much for joining us. Also to Fiona Lachlan, Holly Cairns in studio, thank you very much for joining us this evening. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all the usual major platforms. Our next news on Virgin Media One is here on Ireland AM tomorrow morning at 7. From all the late team, good night. Thanks for watching and take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.